be with us this morning, be with us this weekend too, Lord, uh, as the speaker brings in the good news, Lord, of what you want us to hear, Lord. Let yourself be moved through him, Lord, and that everything that we experience this morning will be an experience with you. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks for uh, the hospitality that you've shown to me over the last couple of days, Christy and I. We just have felt very much at home. And uh, are we still? Are we okay? All right. This is awkward. <laughs> All right. Let's try that. How's that? We'll keep talking, and eventually something will come up. There we go. Okay. Thanks, thanks. Um, I know that some of you are going to be going home for the weekend, and, and so I may not see you again. As this isn't goodbye to everybody, but just to say thanks to those of you who have really made us feel at home, and it's been a real privilege to be here. Thanks to Corey. I, Corey has become a really good friend of mine, and, and I know that you're grateful for the kind of leader you have here. How many of you love Corey? And, and Corey made a really good decision and married Edie. <laughs> and uh, we're thankful for Edie, too. I, I love your president. Dr. McGee has become also a really uh, wonderful support and good friend. And I know that you're grateful for all of your faculty here and your teachers and your staff. Tonight, I want to talk to you about the question of where is God when we're suffering? And what happens when, when we go through things like 9-11 and we go through things like Newtown and we wonder where is God in the midst of that and how are we to respond? That's part of what I want to talk about tonight. So if you can be here at 7, I'd love to see you. But this morning, I want to talk about the cross. And behind me, up here, I noticed that we have a cross there right directly behind this lectern. And it's something that we see all the time. And cross is probably the most widely recognized symbol in the, in the world today. And whenever we see the cross, we're reminded of Jesus. Not just of his life uh, and his ministry, but I think when we see the cross, we're reminded of the fact that Jesus died on a cross. And we're reminded of the fact that he died by crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was, I think, the most horrendous, appalling, torturous form of execution ever invented by humankind. And for that reason, I think that a person in the first century would find it very strange to see one of us wearing a cross around our neck on a chain. Uh, they, they would see that as weird. Think about if you saw someone who had an electric chair on a chain around their neck, you would think that to be very odd. Or if you were to see somebody who had a little charm bracelet with a little gas chamber attached to that, you would think that was a little strange, right? Well, that's the way the cross was for people in the first century. It, it was disgraceful. It was distasteful. 
because it was the ultimate fate for hardened criminals, people who were insurrectionists against the state. And crucifixion was so completely horrendous that we had to create a word to even describe it. Excruciating is the word. Excruciating. When we talk about somebody's in excruciating pain, it literally means from the cross. And death by crucifixion was a very slow death, a very agonizing death. It was a horrifying death that was done in a public manner. You didn't die in obscurity. People who were crucified were, were watched for days. And people would mock them and jeer them. And people would throw stones at them. And they would laugh at them. And, and that person dying on a cross would go into this slow state of labored breathing until finally they were gasping for breath. People on the cross usually didn't die from the elements. They didn't die from the torture. They usually died of asphyxiation because as they would hang their, their lungs... Would be, it would be hard to get air into their lungs and to push precious air back out. And they would have to push themselves up on the cross to get air. And eventually they would literally strangle themselves to death. And then those who were crucified, they weren't given any kind of a decent burial. A person who died on the cross would often be left there for days and days, even after they had died, for the birds of the air to come and just pick their flesh and the vultures to come. And historians tell us that Literally, body parts would fall off to the ground. It was reported by first century historians that occasionally a dog would return home with a chew toy that was a hand or a foot. And after a while, what they would do is they they would leave that corpse up there as a reminder of what would happen if you were to challenge the state. But then they would take the corpse down eventually and throw it into the dump with the rest of the garbage. I want to remind you this morning that Jesus died on a criminal's cross. Which leads me to the most peculiar thing of all about Jesus' death on the cross. That Christians, including myself, declare that to be good news. In fact, we think it's the best news that we've ever heard. The Bible has a word for it. It's called gospel. The cross is our gospel. It is our good news. Because in the shortest summation of the gospel that I think is in all of Scripture, the Apostle Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, the most important fact in human history. And this is what Paul says. Christ died. And all by itself, that doesn't seem to be good news. But then Paul adds a little bit of theological understanding because he he uses a, a profoundly important preposition to move us from the fact of history to its incredible relevance for our lives. He says, Christ died for our sins. And that's why it's good news. That's why it's the best news that we've ever heard. And theologically, the Bible has a word for that. The Bible calls that the atonement. Atonement means at one to bring together as one. Atonement was made at the cross of Jesus. And what does that mean? What, is, what does that mean? Well, the doctrine of the atonement begins in the Old Testament. And any of you who are raised in a Jewish family or you had Jewish friends, you know that there's such a thing as the Day of Atonement. And that's called Yom Kippur. I want you to picture this scene in your mind. I want you to imagine 
literally thousands upon thousands of worshipers coming together at the beginning of the year to to have their sins covered over, to have their sins cleansed, to have their sins atoned for, and, and to be reminded that God is a God of mercy. And, and on that day, their high priest would, would walk out representing all of the people, and they would bring two goats forward. And one goat over here would be sacrificed as a sin offering to make atonement for the Holy of Holies and to make atonement for the altar, and blood would be shed, and that animal would die. Romans says the wages of sin is death. And Hebrews says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so that first goat would die. But the second goat over here was kept alive. And that goat was called the scapegoat. And the high priest would lay his hands onto the head of that scapegoat and he would confess over it all of the sins of the people and all of the wickedness of the Israelites and He would kind of symbolically put them on the goat's head. And then they would take that goat and they would send it away out into the wilderness. And that goat symbolically carried the people's sins away to a solitary place somewhere out in the desert. And tradition tells us the person who was kind of given the job to take the goat away would be a Gentile. Because no Jew wanted to be walking around with all the sins of his neighbors on the head of that goat. You know, nobody wanted to see that goat wandering around in town a few days later and say, oh, look, honey, there's the scapegoat. No, they were, they were placing their sins literally on the head of that goat and they were sending it away to say, leave us forever. And yet, that ritual would go on year after year and blood would flow And thousands of animals would be sacrificed in this endless cycle of atonement to deal with the sins of the people because ultimately the sins were never really going away. And that was the background into which Jesus came. Now, before we talk specifically about how Jesus' death on the cross made atonement for sin once and for all, let's talk for a a second about what we mean when we say sin. And why we need atonement for those sins. I think that's a really important question today. That we understand what it is we're talking about. What is sin and why does it need to be atoned for? The first thing I want to tell you is that sin is rebellion. It's rebellion. Perhaps the most famous definition of sin is a willful transgression of a known law of God. It's it's something that you know is wrong and you do it anyway because... Because you can. And so in that sense, it is willful kind of disobedience. John 1 says sin is lawlessness. And what that means is not just in the legalistic sense as in you broke the law, so you sinned. But it's more about the attitude that is underlying that sin law breaking. Here's an example of that. It's one thing for you to go 85 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone because you didn't know the speed limit. And you might still be breaking the law kind of technically, but you're, you're not acting lawlessly because you didn't know the speed limit. Although 85, I don't know that there's ever any speed limit for 85. But see, that's really different than a person who just says, forget these stupid speed limit rules. Forget these regulations. I'll do what I want to do because I'm in charge of my own life. And see, it's the attitude of rebellion 
that has to do with law breaking. It's, it's having that rebellious spirit. I'll do what I want to and it doesn't matter about anybody else. And my daughter, Madison, was a little girl. She's our youngest of three. She didn't like the fact that she had to answer to her older brother and her sister when her mom and dad were gone. And so when Christy and I would leave her with her brother and sister, she would immediately go into her brother and sister and say defiantly, you know, raising her squeaky little voice, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. And that's really what the heart of sin is. It's, it's like this self-sovereignty and it. It's when people take their tiny little fist and they shake it in the face of Almighty God and they say, you will not be in charge of my life. I'm going to be in control. You will not control me. And it's, it's refusing to accept the fact that we are creatures and God is creator, but we want to be our own gods. Isaiah 53 says, all of us are like that. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have left God's paths to follow our own. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the sins of us all. That's the first thing that sin is. See, it's, it's, it's rebellion. The second thing that sin is, is enslavement. Because sin is more than self-sovereignty. Sin is more than just deciding to do your own thing, whether God likes it or not. Sin is a condition that we find ourselves in. We are enmeshed in it. It's, it's not just an action we take. It's, it's our nature, which means that not only are we rebels by nature, but we are not free to do otherwise. It's, we are captive in a sense, to sin. We not only miss the mark, we couldn't hit the mark if we tried to. If, as fallen people, we aren't free to do as we wish. We are captives to sin. And see, that's different than some of us grew up thinking because we thought rebellion meant that we could do what we wanted and we could be in charge of our own lives. But what we, what we don't understand is that we don't get to make that choice. We will serve somebody. That's in our natures. We are either going to serve God with our whole heart or we are going to be enslaved to our own passions and our own sinful behaviors. But one or the other will be our master. We don't get to choose. You'll either be a slave to God or you'll be a slave to your own condition. And let's face it. Let's get one thing clear. Sin can be fun. Okay? There I said it. Sin can be fun. I mean, if it weren't fun, it wouldn't be tempting. If it weren't fun, it wouldn't be alluring, right? And so let's stop telling folks how much they're going to hate sin and how boring it is and how it's not. It's just not a convincing argument. Sorry for all the preachers that told you that. Sin can be fun for a while. It's the path where sin always, and underline the word always, where it always leads that is so destructive. It's, it's the consequences that are painful. And, and sin is a vicious cycle. Let me give you an example. Getting smashed at a party can be fun. Where it leads is not fun. 
Drunkenness is not fun. Hangovers are not fun. Alcoholism is not fun. Addictions are not fun. Detox centers are not fun. Car accidents are not fun. Spousal abuse is not fun. Dysfunctional families aren't fun. Are you with me? Sin is a vicious cycle that, while it appears to be what you want to do, it leads to a painful consequence. Having sex with someone outside of marriage can be fun. Where it leads is not fun. A guilty conscience is not fun. STDs are not fun. Divorce is not fun. Breaking someone's heart is not fun. Having to look your kids in the eye and tell them why I'm leaving their mother is not fun. See, sin is a vicious cycle that will always lead to some kind of painful destruction. That's the story of the prodigal son. There's this rebellious son who decides he wants to be his own boss. And he tells his dad to drop dead. And he takes off with his inheritance. And he has a wild time. And he blew the doors off. And he partied high. And he lived high on the hog. And he had a lot of fun. For a while. Until his money ran out. And then his friends ran out too. And he ended up in a place he never dreamed he would be. He ended up broken and humiliated and living in a pig pen. That's the cycle of sin. That's the way it always leads. And that's why Jesus said, wide is the gate and broad is the road that will lead you to destruction. And many people enter through that, he said. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life. And I just want to be honest with you this morning. Until our nature changes... We're going to love sin more than we're going to love God. And the reason is we're enslaved to it. We're in bondage to it. And there's no amount of our good intentions or our hard work that's going to liberate us from that. Because sin is enslavement. I'm going to give you one more. Sin is rebellion. Sin Sin is enslavement. But this last one, this last one breaks my heart most of all. And that is that sin is estrangement. And estrangement is a big word that just means this. Something has gone wrong in the relationship. Because sin is not just breaking rules. It's literally damaging a relationship. It, it is what separates us from God. And in the first recorded act of sin, our our spiritual ancestors, whose names were Adam and Eve, they they disobeyed God. And and when they did, they immediately knew that something had gone horribly wrong. Something had been damaged, not only in their relationship with God, but in their relationship with each other. And the Bible says their eyes were suddenly opened. And for the first time in their lives, they realized that they were naked. And that doesn't mean they realized they didn't have any clothes on. It meant that they were just emotionally, they felt shame, they felt vulnerable, they felt weakness, and and they felt, most of all, alienated. And up until that time, the Bible says that they were in this perfect harmony, this perfect loving relationship and fellowship with God. But in that moment, they felt the separation. 
they felt this, the estrangement and their fellowship was broken. And they felt the guilt that just bore down on them like a crushing weight. And they did a very interesting thing. They, they tried to cover it up. They tried to cover their nakedness. You ever tried to cover up your guilt? You ever tried to hide your sin from God? And God knows that fellowship had been broken. And, and so he comes to Adam and Eve. And one of the most poignant moments in all of Scripture, God calls out to them. And he just I can just hear his heart in this. Where are you? Now, did God not know where they were? Were they doing such a good job of hiding behind the trees that God couldn't find them? I mean, have you ever played hide-and-go-seek with a three-year-old? It's like, I can see you. Uh, Just stop hiding. (laughs) Of course God knew where they were. But here's the thing, guys. He, He wanted them to know, I feel the separation. I feel the alienation too, and it's breaking my heart. And the man said, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And and it strikes me, that's the very first time in the entire Bible the word fear is ever mentioned. See, that's what sin does. Sin does bring fear and guilt and shame. And it brings alienation and condemnation and separation. And that's why enemies, I mean, that's why friends become enemies. It's because of sin. And that's why intimacy gets turned into hostility. And that's how fellowship gets broken. Even in Christian circles, when we break our relationships with with each other, when we don't love each other, it isn't because we've just hurt each other's feelings. It's because there's sin in the middle of it. Are you with me on that? And we all feel it. When my oldest daughter was six, she, she came home from a friend's house one night with more money than when she left. Meaning, she left without a $10 bill and she came home with a $10 bill. And I said, oh, that's nice. Where, where did you get that, Megan? And she said, I don't remember. Which I thought was curious because she was just thrashing me at memory games, even at six years old. And I said, you don't remember? And she said, oh, yeah, I think I found it. You found it? Yeah, it... it it jumped into my pocket. She started giving me this elaborate story about how this $10 bill jumped in her pocket. And I said, Megan, did you take this money from Jolene's house? And all of a sudden her head fell and she said, yes, I saw this money in Jolene's piggy bank. And, and she had so much and I didn't have any money. <laughs> she said, yeah, my dad's a pastor. So, uh, she just burst into tears and she said, I'm so sorry. I took money and I said, Megan, I, I'm glad you told me the truth, but you do know we're going to have to go make this right. We're going to have to go tell Jolene and her mom and dad what happened. And Megan was just like mortified. And she said, Dad, I can't do that. And I said, Megan, I, I had to do the same thing when I was your age. And she said, you did? And I said, yes. And then she said, but now you're all grown up and I still have to learn my lessons. And and so I said, well, I'll go, we'll go together and we'll do this together. And so we got in the car and Megan put that $10 bill up on the, like the dash of the car. And I had to get gas on the way. And so I put gas in the car and then I pulled up to go ahead and pay. And I walked in and she was there in the car and I came back out. 
And she'd done something very interesting. She had taken a Kleenex and had laid it right over the top of the $10 bill, completely covered it up. There was just this Kleenex. And I said, Megan, why did you hide the $10 bill? And she said something very, very interesting. She said, I didn't want anybody to see what I had done. And then she said something I'll never forget. She said, I feel sick, I feel guilty, and now I'm going to lose my friend. And it hit me that even at six years old, she knew what it, like, what it was like to feel the alienation that sin can bring. And that's our predicament. Because sin is rebellion, and sin is enslavement, and sin is estrangement. But here's the question. What are we going to do about all that sin? What are we supposed to do with all of that sin? Let me tell you one more time. The greatest news that you'll ever hear. Christ died for our sin. Christ died for our sin. God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were still having sex with our boyfriend and our girlfriend, while we were still getting drunk out of our minds, while we were still disrespecting our parents, while we were still lying, while we were still stealing, while we were still being selfish, while we were still slandering, while we were still gossiping, while we were still cheating on our spouses, while we were still ignoring God. Listen, God broke into all of that. And he demonstrated his love for us in that while we were sinning, Christ died for us. The Bible says God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And Luther, Martin Luther, called that the great exchange. And this is what he meant by that. The exchange was my death for his life. And it was my sin for his righteousness and my condemnation for his salvation and my failure for his success and my defeat for his victory. That's what the atonement means. It's the act of God that comes into our life and breaks down all of that junk and all of that rebellion and all of the sin that's been erected between us and God. Romans says, all have sinned, including the person preaching this sermon. All have fallen short of the glory of God. But John says, this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. And send his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And let me tell you what I think that means. That means that the atonement has been in the heart of God all along. All of those lambs and all of those goats and all of those priests and all of those sacrifices in the temple. All of that was leading us to Jesus, the great high priest who shed his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. 
And Jesus did for us what we could have never done for ourselves. You want to know what he's done for you? He takes away your sin. Past, present, and future. And the Bible says he just throws it away into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered anymore. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed his transgress- our transgressions from us. Not only that, I want to tell you something else. When Jesus died on the cross, he broke the power of sin in your life. And that once you were slaves to sin, once you were bondage to sin, you were, you were bound up to the prince of the power of the air and the God of this age. But Jesus on the cross entered into mortal combat and he broke the power of that and the power of death and the power of hell and the power of the grave. And he won a victory for us. That we couldn't win for ourselves, which means that you are no longer in the grip of sin. You can be in the grip of his grace. And potentially you can be free of that. And it also means that because Jesus died on that cross, we have all been reconciled back to God. The estrangement has been taken away. The distance has been closed. The chasm has been crossed. And he has become our peace who has broken down every wall. The veil of the temple that separated us from God has been torn in two. And all of our guilt and our shame and our fear is taken away. The Bible says once you were far from God, but now you have been brought near to him. Through the blood of Christ. Do you have any idea. How much God loves you. I'm serious about this. Do you have any idea. What God has done. Out of love for you. God has been sinned against. And that's why forgiveness is not a flippant thing. You know, sometimes I hear people say things like, it doesn't matter what I do. Of course God's going to forgive me. God has to forgive me. That's what God does. You don't understand it then. You don't understand that there's been a cross in the heart of God from all eternity and that God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit has assumed all of that on himself. And you don't understand that Jesus entered into it fully. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I could stop all of this, but I willingly lay it down because I love them that much. There's nothing more important than the death and resurrection of Jesus. It has changed the course of human history. And without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of your sins. Without Jesus, there is no eternal life. Without Jesus, there is no relationship at all with a good and beautiful God. But with Jesus, it's there. Last thing I want to say. You can punish yourself for the rest of your life for your sins. You can break your back trying to make your peace with God. But the only way you're ever going to know redemption is if you bow your knee and you say, my only hope is you, Jesus. 
You carried my sin to that summit. You died on that cross and your death has given me life. You say, David, how do I receive the atonement? It almost seems too good to be true. But this is how you receive it. You believe. And you throw yourself on the mercy of the God who loved you that much. And you put your trust in Christ. And you believe that what he did has covered your sin. And that your guilt is broken. And power is changed. And you find it one met with God. I want to tell you one last piece of the story with Megan. <laughs> that day we pulled up to our friend's house. It was nighttime and I held her hand and we walked up to the door and rang the doorbell. Megan was shaking. I almost wanted to pull her out of it. I just said, no, I'm not going to make her do this. But all of a sudden the door opened and I knew it was too late. <laughs> and there stood my friend. And Megan's about this tall and... I said, Jaron, Megan and I have something we need to talk to you about. And my friend had enough wisdom. He got down on his hands and his knees right in front of Megan like this, where he could see her. And she began to confess. And she said, Jaron, I stole money from Jolene's piggy bank. And I'm so sorry. I know I shouldn't have done it. Will you please forgive me? And she just started crying. And, you know, and I'm, st I'm starting to cry. And, and Jaron does the most amazing thing. He takes her head in his hands and he looks her in the eye and he pulls her head up and he said, Megan, I love you. Of course I forgive you. Of course I forgive you. And Megan, who's given me permission to tell that story, has said that even though that, that was 23 years ago now for her, 22 years ago now, it was still the night where she understood the full weight of her sin and yet also grasped the full extent of God's love. There's two ways you can think about the atonement. On the one hand, you can say, if God is really a God of love, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Or you could say this, Jesus died on the cross. What love? God wants to put his hands on your face and say, I love you. Of course I forgive you. Do you need to be forgiven today? This is really serious business. I want you to close your eyes, please, and have our worship team come back up. The decisions you make in a moment where you are faced with the reality of the cross can become some of the most life-altering decisions that you'll ever make. This morning, I've done my best to tell you the truth. And if you need to come and ask God to come into your life, to be forgiven of your sins, to take away your guilt, to take away your shame, to make things right between you and the Father. And this is your moment. 
Stand with me quietly, please. Father, right now, your Holy Spirit is here, the living Christ, the very Jesus who died on the cross and was raised from the dead. Your Spirit is here. This morning, God, I've done the best I could to describe why we have to have the cross. And today, God, by your mercy, will you extend the grace and the love that drew you to the cross to us today? I pray for strength and courage and faith to be born in people's hearts today. And if there's any here today who need to be forgiven, I pray they would seek it and they would find it. A new beginning. We're going to sing this song. And if you want to come and pray, if there might be a hundred of you, there might be one. It doesn't matter. But if you want to find right relationship with God today, this is your moment. Let's sing it together.
Father, thank you for your presence in this, this place. Thank you that you are here. We know you're here. And I pray that you'll help us to just think about what's been said today. I pray that none of us would leave this place and just leave it behind. Let this story work on us. I pray that throughout the course of this week and the course of this semester that we will continue to remember what you have done and what you can do. Lord, no person is so far lost that you will not bring them home. And I pray that you will help all of us to live in the way that you've called us to live when you loved us enough to die on the cross. Now send us from this place with hope and belief and new profound joy. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. And everybody said together, amen. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you here tonight, 7 o'clock. You're dismissed.